Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. The regulatory environment around sustainable finance continues to be a hot topic and even more so now that the key aspects of implementation are coming into focus. On the 4th of April last, we held a webinar on this topic and to provide an update on the latest developments relating to the EU sustainable finance framework. This podcast episode is taken from that webinar and you will hear from four experts in this area, namely Patrick Rooney of Irish Funds who leads the regulatory desk on ESG, Tara Doyle of Matheson and Lorena Dunn of William Fry, who are chair and vice chair, respectively, of the Irish Fund's ESG Policy, Legal and Regulatory Working Group, and Hansel Fadrin, who is vice chair of the AFAMA ESG Standing Committee and chair of the AFAMA Stewardship Workstream. The discussion covers supervisory developments from the Central Bank of Ireland, the MIFID's Suitability Consultation and EET, and the latest update on SFDR and developments on taxonomy. Hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. Hello, good morning. You're all very welcome to this EU Sustainable Finance Regulatory Update webinar. My name is Patrick Rooney from Irish Funds and I'm joined this morning by Tara Doyle from Matheson, who is the chair of our ESG Policy, Legal and Regulatory Working Group. I'm also joined by Lorena Dunn, who is vice chair of the same working group and coming from William Fry. And finally, we are delighted to welcome Hansel Faderland from Bailey Gifford, who is also a member of our ESG working group and also vice chair of the AFAMA ESG and Stewardship Standing Committee. So delighted to have you all here today for this webinar. And today's session, if we move to the next slide, please, David, will cover our engagement with the Central Bank, and we have some very recent updates on that. The current MIFID suitability preferences consultation uh, on ESG, which is live at the moment, and also the related European ESG template, or EET. Then we'll move on to discussion about SFDR developments and then finally taxonomy developments. And there is an opportunity throughout the webinar to ask a Q&A. So you can use the chat box at any stage to ask a Q&A. We have allowed time for questions at the end, but we probably will deal with some of your questions as well throughout the webinar as relevant to the various segments that I've outlined above. And just to note, we're not covering the usage and AIFMD delegated acts as part of this update. There's only so much that we can fit in. We will be publishing, hopefully very soon, a, a document from Irish funds on implementation of those delegate, delegated acts, and we will have a separate webinar on that. And likewise, we will also do a dedicated webinar on sustainability reporting given the scale of the issues arising there and the developments. So there'll be more to follow on all of that in the coming weeks. Now, please note that the webinar is being recorded live and the recording will be made available afterwards along with the slides and will be posted to our website. Uh, you can ask a question at any stage, as I mentioned. So let's now get started with the central bank developments. We we'll move to the next slide. Thank you, David. Uh, so Tara, um, so far the central bank has issued a DRCO letter to industry regarding sustainable finance. It has also been undertaking reviews of uh, sample filings that have been recently made and it has advised industry that it will conduct a thematic review later in the year. 
yesterday we met with the central bank and they gave us an update on, on their activity. So Tara, let's start with the ongoing review of the sample of filings. If you could give us the update from the meeting, please. Sure, and I guess just um, by way of background for people unfamiliar with the, the central bank sample review, this um, is an initiative the central bank telegraphed to us earlier in the year. Um, it really is in response to the fact that so far, pretty much everything that managers have filed under SFDR and under taxonomy has been done via a fast track process. So for people establishing new funds, yes, they've been through the normal review process and had central bank comments on uh, their documents. But the vast majority of funds have filed on a fast track basis. And the central bank was eager really to, to spot check those to really to be able to assess the standard of disclosure that was being made and to try and assess whether consistency is being achieved across the industry. Um, and very helpfully, they wanted to give us some initial feedback on that spot checking. So I think the important thing before getting into the detail um, of the feedback they gave us is to note that they're at a preliminary stage still. I mean, they have reviewed 35 funds um, and they have begun to comment on those funds and, and to engage with the managers of those funds. But they have not um, done a broader search and they've not finalized that process and they're not yet ready to publish their findings. So sharing them with us at this initial stage, it, it's very helpful, but there's an important caveat that their thinking may evolve here. And in particular, their thinking may evolve um, as they engage further with ESMA, with other European um, supervisors, and as they process the European, um, sorry, ESA's joint supervisory statement, which you know I know we will discuss later in the seminar. So what was the feedback then? Well, 35 funds, as I say, were reviewed, um, and they would have been from different managers. So while 35 doesn't sound like a lot, that's actually quite a broad cross-section of Irish A funds and MANCOs. And they also had a cross-section of funds. So they didn't just look at 35 ESP funds. They looked at 35 funds falling under the different categorizations, Article 6, Article 8, and Article 9. There were 11 Article 6, 17 Article 8, and 7 Article 9 in this sample size. I suppose that all of the funds, when you think about it, had to do with Article 6, whether it was to say that Article 6 is not relevant or to say that Article 6 is relevant. So quite a bit of the central bank's feedback focuses on Article 6. If anybody received comments from the central bank, you know, they, they might have, have, have been concerned because they were getting some questions. But what was interesting about the feedback yesterday was that in many cases, the central bank was very happy with the responses that they received to those questions. So they, they may look to be questioning why, for instance, you said that you didn't think that Article 6 was applicable to your fund, that sustainability risks were applicable to your fund. And they would have asked you to explain that you would have provided them an explanation and they're satisfied for the most part with those explanations. More generally, in relation to Article 6, they did express some concerns that disclosures were too generic. So people are required to talk about how sustainability risks are integrated into their investment decisions. And there were too many examples of people just saying that they were without really getting into the detail of how they are integrated. And then they're also required to disclose 
um, how they are impacting on the returns of funds, so how sustainability risks are impacting on returns of funds. And again, they were concerned that there were too many sort of bold statements that um, risks are impacting on the returns of funds without explaining which risk and how it impacts. Um, so really just a, a call to action there to be more specific in Article 6 disclosures. In relation to Article 8 and 9, they had some specific feedback on particular types of funds. So uh, some concerns about managers saying that they were not conducting ongoing monitoring of the ESG approach of underlying investment managers and instead relying on annual assessments um, of, their, of their ESG approach. So an expectation there that there would be more of an ongoing monitoring by a manager, whether that's a third party manager or a multi-manager approach. Um, in relation to ETFs or our funds which use a reference index, there was um, a concern that managers were saying that the monitoring of the characteristics um, of the index and whether they are consistent with the um, stated characteristics of the fund, that that is something for the benchmark or index provider to, 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 to do and not for the manager to do. And again, a concern by the central bank that SFDR requires a more active approach by the manager in terms of that monitoring. But I think the biggest issue for the Article 8 and 9, and a little unsurprising in the context of the um, ESA's Joint Supervisory Statement, which was published last month, is an evolution in the expectation around taxonomy alignment disclosure. So the Irish industry broadly took an approach of explaining why it wasn't possible at this point to disclose taxonomy alignment. So whether that was to say we're not disclosing it and this is why or we're having to disclose zero percent alignment because we can't provide any more meaningful figure and this is why and that's an approach that we would have discussed as an industry that we would have raised with the central bank but people will have seen in the ESA's joint supervisory statement that there's now an expectation that there would be an explicit quantification of taxonomy alignment and the central bank noted three of the funds that they sampled, so three of the 35, were actually able to provide a percentage taxonomy alignment. And the central bank didn't just accept that at face value, they interrogated how those figures were arrived at, and they were satisfied with the information that managers were able to provide. In some cases, it was proprietary information, in other cases, it was relying on data providers. And the question now from the bank is, if some managers can do it, why can't all managers do it? So we did provide challenge there, and we did explain the issues that are facing the industry around data. And we did agree to follow up further with the central bank around that. But at the moment, they are leaning towards um, applying that supervisory statement um, in an Irish context. So their, their current thought process is an expectation that managers would now move to an explicit quantification of taxonomy alignments. So I think that's probably the biggest headline coming out of yesterday's meeting. Thanks, Tara. That covered a lot of ground there. And uh, good to get that feedback, I think, for, for the industry on the central bank's concerns. And also good to hear that there were some positive findings as well. So a question actually has arrived in here, an early question. Um, in relation to the, the timing of updates. So do managers need to consider updating their documents immediately? OK, 
Okay, so, so here's where I have some good news. So if everybody's on the floor already, because I've told them they have to put in taxonomy percentage alignment. Uh, the good news is first, that actually only applies to Article 8 and Article 9. So all the Article 6 funds, that, that's not applicable to you. And it doesn't apply to all Article 8 and Article 9. Remembering that you know it, it is only the Article 8 and 9s to which the, the first two um, climate related um, objectives apply. And it's also only those who make a commitment uh, to, to sustainable investment. So it's, it is still a smaller category of people to whom that this requirement um, applies. But the central bank acknowledges that there is a deadline coming up. It's the 1st of January next year when there will need to be updates to, to offering documents. And their current thinking is that that's an appropriate time to update your documents to reflect the percentage taxonomy alignment. If you have your documents open before then for, for some reason, then they would have an expectation that you would take that opportunity to update. But they're not going to require all funds to update on an interim basis. That's their current thinking. Again, that may evolve if there is a general expectation at the European table that there will be interim updates. But for now, managers can start preparing for one January rather than an immediate update. Some important caveats to that, if you've got a new fund, these new requirements are going to apply straight away. So you need to be thinking about how you can disclose taxonomy alignment in that new fund offering document. Also, if you are opening your documents for other reasons, there will be an expectation that you will also update them for this. And then when it comes to Article 6 funds, um, Article 6 funds don't have a 1 January deadline. So the central bank's expectation is really as soon as practical, the next time you're opening your document, you should consider updating. Remembering that really what they're asking for from an Article 6 perspective is to be more detailed in your uh, application of Article 6. Thanks, Tara. That sounds uh, very pragmatic. And we will continue to engage on those taxonomy issues as well, as, as you mentioned. So another question in terms of what the central bank said about the generic nature of some of the disclosures that they're seeing, what should managers be considering doing in relation to that? You know, I think it's a little bit going back to basics um, looking at. So there will be, sorry, a publication from the central bank. I guess that's the first thing to note. We're, we're giving you hot off the press and, and really based on, on a one, one hour spent with them yesterday. But they will publish a document in due course and that will provide a lot more insight to the market of, of what they're looking for. But really, it's a bit going back to basics, looking at the text of level one, because they weren't saying they're expecting level two disclosures to be reflected in the documents now. They are very happy to refer to level one, but look again and see what am I being asked to do and are the statements and disclosures I'm making in my offering documents consistent with that? So again, you know, as we mentioned with Article 6, explaining why something is going to have an impact um, on your returns. So what sustainability risk? Is it the risk of flooding? You know, is it the risk of, of, of um, erosion? Is it the risk of climate change? Is it a risk in relation to the availability of um, energy? And how is that going to impact on your fund in terms of the investments that you're making and the likely impact that any of those risks will have on the returns you then achieve? Thanks, Tara. Some good tips there. Well, maybe we might move on to the next slide then. And the more forward-looking um, considerations regarding the thematic review, which the central bank has flagged 
will take place later in, in 2022. But Lorena, I think I'm right in saying that the central bank didn't have a great deal more insight to offer on that, on their scoping around that as, as of yet. I think it's still very much under consideration and will be informed by, by the current review of uh, sample filings that, that's ongoing. So maybe if you could comment on that and then also link that to the dear CO letter that issued late last year, just as a, a reminder in terms of what people should be looking at there, please. Thanks, Patrick. Well, I think you're entirely correct and, and you've summarised it as neatly as can be. Um, there's no real substantive update around the thematic review just yet. Uh, we know it'll be later in the year, but the central bank is waiting until it finalises this sample review of 2021 disclosures and issues the external report that Harvard to earlier outlining its findings. And um, before it then turns its focus to the thematic inspections, which will form the basis um, or be which will be based on the uh, outcome of that, that report. So I guess looking back to the Dear CEO letter that you mentioned, I suppose it's important to highlight there that this letter emphasized possibly for the first time um, directly to industry the CBI's support of the EU framework around sustainable finance and the convergence approach. And I think that's something that's very much to be welcomed. Um, Probably the key element of that letter for managers um, was the focus on governance and management of sustainability risk and disclosures. And the central bank has obviously, as, as Tara's outlined um, earlier, been very focused on sustainability risk and, and indeed other disclosures as part of this 2021 disclosures review process. Um, so 10th of March was, of course, the first meaningful deadline uh, relevant to this and the, the use of an AIFMD regime is, is set to be updated with, effect, updated with effect from August this year in respect of the integration of sustainability risks, etc. So I think it's really for managers to be uh, looking at their existing compliance with those um, regimes and, and looking forwards towards August and the use of an AIFMD updates coming down the track. Thanks, Lorena. Some some good advice there. And we will also cover that dear CEO letter in the publication that I mentioned about the, the delegated acts. So we might move on then to uh, the next slide and to Hansel, come to you now, Hansel, in relation to the MIFA II consultation on sustainability preferences. If you could please give us an overview of that consultation, and then I think you're going to highlight some of the key issues, please. Yep, sure, Patrick, um, and good morning, everyone. So before I cover the key aspects of the consultation, I thought it makes sense to remind ourselves of the definition of sustainability preferences. So I have included it on the slide. Because of the introduction of sustainability preferences as part of the amendments to the MIFID II delegated regulation, ESMA had to consult on some aspects of its MIFID suitability guidelines. This consultation is open until the 27th of April, and Irish funds led by its MIFID working group will be responding to, its consult to this consultation. In terms of the clarifications made within the consultation, the key one for me is ESMA providing examples of what qualitative consideration of adverse impact mean, which can then be used by firms in terms of determining whether their financial products consider principal adverse impacts or not. There is a separate section on consideration of adverse impacts. So, uh, so more details of this will be provided uh, shortly. So from an implementation perspective, there are two main issues. So first one is the misalignment between the effective date 
of the amendments to MIFID II delegated regulation and the effective date of SFDR RTS. So at the start of August, distributors may not necessarily have all the required information to implement the concepts relating to sustainability preferences. The second key concern is the very prescriptive nature of the exploration in relation to client sustainability preferences, including the requirement to, correct, to collect very granular information related relating to these preferences. There is a danger that at the end of the self-assessment process, there is no product that can be provided, can be offered to the client because the client expectation does not match the reality of the products that are available in the market. And this could lead to the client being disengaged with the whole process. So us, as such, our main policy ask is really for a more proportionate approach to bridge the gap between consumer expectations and the products that are currently available in the market. Thanks, Hansel, for, for, for that. So just, just to probe that a bit, you know, an investor could potentially, going through the process, uh, naturally have a high expectation regarding taxonomy alignment, say I would like 90% taxonomy uh, alignment. So that's not just going to be possible, I think, given the realities of where the marketplace is at at the moment. So, so how exactly will you be, be matching these expectations to, to the reality of, of what is currently available? So that is a very good question. So there are a lot of surveys out there that say um, consumers do not understand, most consumers do not understand ESG related concepts. So a consumer might expect that an Article 9 product um, by virtue of it be be investing in sustainable investment will have a high proportion of taxonomy alignment, uh, aligned investment, when in reality, based on ESMA's final report on Article 8 taxonomy regulation, a quarter of EU funds have are estimated to have 0% taxonomy alignment and that less than 3% of EU funds have an estimated taxonomy alignment of 5% or higher. So financial market participant, participants have a role to play in educating consumers because the only way for us to actually achieve the aims of sustainable finance is by ensuring that no one is left behind and that will include consumers. So to avoid consumer uh, confusion and frustration, our preferred approach is to provide consumers with what products are currently available, but at the same time ask them probing questions, notwithstanding what the products are currently available, regarding their ultimate ambitions on the various aspects of sustainability preferences. In this way, we are still taking into account the end goal of actually understanding what consumers might want to see in terms of the types of products and also not making it um, frustrating or also leading to sort of them being disengaged with the whole process. Thanks Hansel for that explanation and, and consumer education and awareness is so important, isn't it? Uh, so a, a lot of really important considerations around this consultation and Irish funds will be responding to that consultation, so um, we will we will circulate an, uh, that and, and publish our response in due course later this month. So Hansel, maybe if we move on then in the interest of time to the European ESG template and the next slide, please. So, so this is a voluntary market-based initiative to, to operationalize sustainability distribution and, and compliance 
throughout the market. Um, and Hansel, you you have uh, the privilege, and we have the privilege of having you here today. But you're you're um, uh, on an insider in terms of this. You're you're a member of the FinDatX working group. So great to have you here today. If you could give a, a quick summary of of that template and, and things for people to watch out for, please. Yep. Um, so the European ESG template or EET has been developed to facilitate the exchange of regulatory driven ESG data from product manufacturers to distributors. For those that are familiar with the European PRIPS template or EPT and European MIFID template or EMT, the EET is not any different from these two templates, except that EET has significantly, significantly more data, data fields than the other two templates. Finditex recommends the use of EET from 1st of June 2022, so ahead of the effective date of the amendments to BIFID 2 and IDD in August. Recognizing that the SFDR RTS will not come into effect until the 1st of January 2023, there will be a phased implementation of EET. And column F of the template clearly identifies the mandatory and conditional fields that firms are expected to complete by 1st of June 2022. This means firms are only expected to complete 66 data fields out of the 500 data fields. While the expectation is the EET will be provided for all funds, product manufacturers may want to focus on their Article 8 and 9 products during the initial implementation period, with the ultimate goal of extending it to Article 6 products at some point during the year. Thanks, Hansel. So something I've really noted there is 56 out of 500 data fields are, are mandatory and I know there was there was a lot of concern over the the scale of the the template and, and what would need to be completed in in uh, short time frames so that that is welcome in, in in terms of a phased approach as well and you know mandatory and, and optional depending on the the circumstances but there still are really significant timing issues aren't there around implementation here the MIFID and the IDD delegated acts were 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 not delayed, despite the deferral of the SFDR RTS, and there's an interconnection there. So, you know, with all of that in mind, can you perhaps explain to people what exactly needs to be filled out in the EET for one June, and and is that achievable? Yep. So, sorry, Patrick, just to correct. So there's 66 fields that are mandatory and conditional that are expected to be completed. So they're all marked um, identified in column F of the template. So, But if you are not marketing in France or Germany, it will be reduced to 61 data fields. So the Finditex um, recognizes that there will be a phase in period and, and they're expecting best efforts basis, I guess, between 1st of June and until firms update their pre-contractual documents. So there will be data fields that, uh, for example, talks about the taxonomy alignment or commitment to sustainable investment. So there is an option to, in, to include in the template whether those are already reflected in the pre-contractual documents or the, the numbers that you are indicating are the numbers that you will eventually include in your update of pre-contractual documents. So there is that sort of recognition about the best effort basis, particularly um, on the evolving nature of data. Great, thanks Hansel. Yeah, and very, very important to have that recognition of, of best efforts, which is really important uh, at the moment, given the, the evolving data landscape that, that we have. 
and I know we'll delve into that in more in more detail. Um, back to, back to you, Lorena. Um, let's now cover SFDR. So uh, a key question that is arising, if we move on to the next slide, uh, is what constitutes a sustainable investment under SFDR? And the level one text here takes a principles-based approach to this, and it's, it's not all about taxonomy alignment, it's, it's broader than that. Uh, and the commission has indicated that, that it might clarify further the parameters around sustainable investments. So could you give us an overview of what the key considerations are here, please? Sure, thanks, Patrick. And I think there's plenty to unpack here, so I apologize in advance um, to the extent that it gets a little bit dense in parts. Um, but I suppose to begin with, it might be worth making a broad observation, and that is that there's a distinction, of course, to be drawn between sustainable investments as they are defined under SFDR and taxonomy-aligned sustainable investments with the latter for the time being at least, um, constituting a subset of sustainable investments. And that's clear from the RTS, um, and of course it's intentional, we understand, to allow for the development of the taxonomy and to avoid limiting sustainable investments to taxonomy-aligned investments while we're getting taxonomy up and running. Um, but it would seem uh, that the ultimate ambition will be for the two categories to merge over time, so one to bear in mind looking forward. Um, Turning down, I suppose, to the slide and to your first question, which is around the definition of sustainable investment and some issues that we're seeing in that regard and maybe key considerations. And um, we've broken out the three component parts of this definition on this slide, and that's so that we can touch on some of the issues connected to each. And starting off with the requirement, and this is of course defined under Article 217 of SFTR, that a sustainable investment be one which is made in an economic activity that contributes to an environmental or social objective. And we're given a list of examples, it's not exhaustive, of environmental and social objectives under Article 217 SFDR. But one of the main issues here is really that there is no definition of what a contribution means, so to contribute to those objectives for this purpose. And Unlike under the taxonomy, um, where you will have quantitative criteria for assessing activities contribution to environmental activities, SFDR does not prescribe criteria for the assessment of an investment's contribution to an E or an S characteristic. And so in-scope entities have discretion in this regard. And in one sense, that's welcome. But it's also naturally a cause of concern among managers because they want to ensure that they're setting the appropriate thresholds for defining contribution to an environmental or social objective. So in this respect, so two main questions arise around firstly the extent to which an activity can be said to contribute to an environmental or social objective. And if you're not using or the taxonomy isn't appropriate for doing that at this time, then how do you go about doing that? But secondly, even if you can get comfortable that the activity is sustainable, then what percentage of the activities of the company you're investing as a whole does that activity have to, have to represent in order to assert that the investment as a whole is sustainable? So it does become very complex. And I suppose as against that, and, and the key concern is that we, we're hearing some informal soundings um, from the likes of the commission indicating that that figure would need to be quite significant um, in order to get 
get yourself comfortable as a manager that the investment is indeed sustainable for SFTR purposes. So that's the first component part of the sustainable investment definition under SFTR. Turning then to our second column or second box here in the slide, this is the second component of the sustainable investment definition, and it is, of course, the requirement that the investment does not significantly harm any environmental or social objective. It's quite broad, um, and this DNSH, or do no significant harm principle, is obviously a cause of some significant debate. Um, the level two RTS require sustainable investment disclosures to include an explanation of how the principal adverse impact indicators have been taken into account as part of the assessment of sustainable investments for do no significant harm compliance, and that's obviously key. So to enable compliance with that disclosure requirement, the initial and indeed ongoing assessment of investments against the sustainable investment definition must take account of the PAII's I'm sorry, I'm going to shorten this. It's the principal adverse impact indicators in table one of the RTS. You'll remember that they're appended to the back of the still as yet draft um, level twos applicable to the type of investment in question. So it breaks this down as to whether you're an investment company, sovereign or real estate, etc. Um, and then you also, and this is crucial, must take into account any relevant indicators in tables two and three. And you'll recall that principal adverse impact indicators run to, in total, I think across the table, 64. So you know, this is quite a significant requirement. And then how do you determine what's a relevant indicator out of tables two or three? Um, so the RTS provide guidance in that regard to entities. They say you have to consider the scope, severity, probability of occurrence, and potentially irredeemable nature of the indicator's impact. So again, there's a flexibility here that can be welcome on one hand, but on the other, it does require interpretation and interrogation by managers. So th this is something that's very much a, a topic of discussion. And we'll come back to you later when you're filling out the uh, level two template annex for your prospectus. This is very much front of mind. Um, and then additionally, while the, the PAII will identify what constitutes harm in the first place, it's for the manager to set down its own threshold internally as to what constitutes significant harm for the purposes of the sustainable investment definition. So unlike the taxonomy, um, which will set down technical screening criteria for doing no significant harm um, for its own purposes, we're not going to deal with that today um, given time constraints, but neither SFTR level one nor the RTS include any predetermined thresholds for PAIIs and According to the European supervisory authorities, entities are free to set down their own thresholds by reference to which um, these indicators are assessed for significant harm. So the disclosure of how um, principal adverse impact indicators are or have been taken into account should include the criteria used, including any threshold set to assess um, that the investments qualifying as sustainable do not significantly harm environmental or social objectives. And I would say one thing here worth noting is that while there's no obligation to do this, it may be useful um, for the for, for managers to have a reference regards to taxonomy, technical screening criteria in terms of classifying their sustainable investments. And it, it might prove useful just for structuring their discretionary thresholds and, and defining the significant harm um, the threshold that, that I mentioned earlier. So um, and sorry, Patrick, you, you asked a second question, um, which is in relation to 
the potential developments at EU level going forward around this definition. Um, I suppose two to highlight, there have been soundings around potential SFDR level one changes in respect of the sustainable investment definition, but the reality is we've had no formal indication of that as yet. Um, so nothing more to really update um, the industry on today on that regard. But additionally, and I think this was last week, 24th of March, ESMA indicated that it would be undertaking a review of the PAI indicators this year. Um, and that was um, by way of an ESMA chair speech. Um, so this would, of course, have an impact, uh, depending on how th that, that review looks um, on the sustainable investment definition, given that link between the do no significant harm component of the sustainable investment definition and principal adverse indicators. Um, but it's, as I say, unclear what that review is going to look like. Um, all we know so far is that it is intended, and I quote, to ensure that the PAII stay relevant. Thanks, Lorena. So quite a lot of complicated consideration around that. And, and we, we had a question in there actually on uh, people seeing very different practices for do no significant harm. And is this an area that policymakers are going to look at? So I, I, I think we're saying, yes, it was flagged in the renewed strategy uh, that the Commission would look actually at uh, the principal adverse impact indicators. Hansel, I don't know if you maybe want to come in briefly on that um, because you have talked before about setting thresholds, you know, for, for those in, uh, indicators. Yes, certainly. So we are seeing a mixture of approaches, I guess, in terms of how firms are dealing with, uh, I suppose, how they are evidencing taking into in taking into account principal adverse impacts. So we've seen exclusions, we've seen monitoring, and we've seen setting thresholds. So, and I've seen firms also doing a combination of all those. Um, so we, we've had discussion with members of Platform for Sustainable Finance, and, and I think the idea is really, um, the, the overall aim is for the do no significant harm within taxonomy alignment and the definition within Article 217 to align. Because in essence, if you look at the adverse impact indicators on their own, they don't really mean anything. So the only way for, for them to actually merit or to, to mean um, in, in terms of the process is for them to be compared to something. So I, I think the, the overall ambition is for the adverse impact indicators to mirror what the technical screening criteria do no significant harm within the, the taxonomy alignment. Okay, thanks Hansel for that insight. Um, I might move on to the Article 8 products. We, will, we can stay on the same slide, David, but just uh, that's, that's an important consideration here, going back to the renewed uh, strategy as well, Lorena, where the Commission signaled that it may impose sustainability criteria on Article 8 products. So that's, that's very topical at the moment. And currently, Article 8, I think it's fair to say, under the regulation, is more about disclosure being a label in its own right. And there is a broad diversity of funds that are falling within the scope of Article 8. So what do you see as the key challenges here and how do you see this potentially evolving? Uh, yeah, so I suppose as things stand, Patrick, SFDR is quite neutral in terms of the design of funds that are in scope of Article 8. Um, so it doesn't prescribe minimum investment thresholds or eligible investment targets. 
Um, it's not requiring adoption of specific styles of investment um, or strategies, tools, methodologies, etc., um, to implement a sustainable characteristic. And really, this was deliberate. Um, EU was clear that they did not want to stifle innovation in the space. And that is, of course, as you referred to, emphasised in the Commission's SFDR Q&A, um, and that casts, casts the net very wide in terms of the funds that are in scope of Article 8 disclosure requirements. And that goes to your point, this is a disclosure regime, it's targeted at greenwashing and preventing that risk. Um, and so there is an imperative to ensure that the net is cast widely. Um, but as we know, and as you say, from the renewed sustainable finance strategy, the Commission has indicated that it wants to look at imposing minimum sustainability criteria on Article 8 products, and they're actively seeking feedback on that and what they should look like. And just a point to note there is that the central bank has publicly indicated its support for the creation of these minimum sustainability criteria. Um, but ultimately, as things stand, we don't have a sense of what they're going to look like yet. I know that Irish Funds is actively working um, on some proposals around that, um, so more to follow in that regard in due course. But all told, as a result of that criteria being unknown as things stand, it's quite hard to know how its introduction will impact on Article 8 funds and indeed how this will tally with that currently broad scope of Article 8 SFDR and that disclosure focus that was um, so important um, to, to the legislators in the first instance. But certainly um, to the extent that the introduction of minimum sustainability criteria would seem to require an amendment to SFGR level one, really you're back to talking about the usual compliance challenges here around timing and cost, et cetera, to the extent that were to arise. And of course, depending on how those criteria might look, you could be in the space of um, looking at fund reclassifications, and I know there will be concern around that and all that would go with it in terms of impact on um, distribution channels and shareholder engagement and, and regulator engagement, et cetera. Um, but, but one final point I just touched on and, and that others on the group have, have made the point recently is that in one sense, we already have um, a form of, of minimum sustainability criteria to some extent um, in, in the form of the MIFID II criteria for sustainability preferences that limit uh, distribution opportunities for Article 8 funds that don't invest in uh, sustainable investments or taxonomy aligned sustainable investments or, or consider principal adverse impacts. I think Hansel touched on that earlier. So arguably there's an element of saying we're, we're already in the minimum criteria space to some extent, um, but hopefully that, that answers your question. Um, for now, uh, lacking lacking some clarity, unfortunately, at this point. It does indeed. Thanks, Lorena. Yeah, there's certainly um, a lack of clarity there, a lot, lot of uncertainty, but a very important point about the MIFID II criteria and the sustainability preferences in, in relation mm -hmm. to distribution, linking back to what Hansel said. Um, so as, as Hansel mentioned there, um, consideration of principal adverse impacts is one of the potential options uh, to distribute product to investors. So bearing that in mind, is it possible to offer individual products that consider PAI when the manager itself maybe is not considering PAI at the entity level? Um, it's a tricky question, Patrick, isn't it? We know that there are a lot of mixed views on this. Um, and admittedly, 
when you pull the various requirements around PAI together, which we try to do on this slide actually um, from the various sources, it's not particularly obvious as answers go, um, especially when you look at the, the relationship between articles four and seven of SFDR, which does tend to give rise um, to a lot of questions, you know, the PAI considerations to be, um, to be addressed by the entity under article four and by the product under article seven. Um, but, but I do think there is room for an interpretation that um, would allow managers which must, so your large managers, or which opt in, your smaller managers, to considering the entity level PAIs under Article 4, um, that they wouldn't be obliged to consider PAIs at product level as contemplated in Article 7, and vice versa to your immediate question, you know, managers um, opting out of entity-level PAIs are not necessarily precluded from considering product-level PAIs, but I appreciate that there are mixed views on this, and I think dependent on the jurisdictions that they're in, um, or that you're in, you, you might find the view to be um, stronger uh, on the other on the other uh, side of the coin. So really, I think ultimately it, it's one that managers will, will take perhaps a view on, but I feel there is scope to allow for an interpretation um, where under the manager could um, allow for PAI to be considered at the, at the product level, but not necessarily at the entity level. I hope that makes sense. No, it does. Thanks, Lorena, for that detailed consideration. So a further follow-up question that has come in uh, on this. If an Article 6 fund considers PAI and it's there for making a binding commitment to act on that PAI, does that automatically make it an Article 8 fund? Not, well, so I think you need to look at what the what type of disclosure you're making around PAI to begin with. I'd say it's fair to say, and again, there's debate in the space here, Patrick, but a fund that discloses a PAI mitigation strategy, so by that I mean they disclose planned investment action to reduce um, or mitigate or prevent or even um, end principal adverse impacts as opposed to identifying only and reporting PAI, which is the Article 4 requirement at entity level, or arguably as opposed to disclosing plans to mitigate um, PAI through shareholder engagement. That one's more debatable, but if you're limiting, if, if you are, um, certainly if you are dis disclosing a PAI mitigation strategy that, that takes into account planned investment action to deal with PAIs in your investment strategy, then it's very likely you're at product in the scope um, of, of Article 8 or 9 obligations for SFTR. And that, that does seem to be supported by the Commission's SFTR Q&A from last summer. Thank you, Lorena. A question here for you, Hansel, in relation to implementation. So the Commission has clarified that the first reference period for the PAI statement at entity level will be 2022. They clarified that in, in a letter to, to the ESAS. Um, and not, so this is notwithstanding the fact that the RTS don't actually apply until the 1st of January 2023. And also it has been clarified that the periodic reports uh, that are published from the 1st of January 2023 must use the level two template. And there's a lot of detail in all of that, an implementation challenge. And, and, and given the, the, the timing issues, how are you planning to approach compliance around those requirements? 
So <clears throat> I'll split my response to your question into two, Patrick, if that's okay. So first on PAI, at this point, I would expect that firms that are caught by the PAI statement requirements have already selected their two opt-in indicators. Lorena has touched on the factors that need to be considered, I guess, in terms of selecting the two opt-in indicators. So availability of data continues to be a challenge, and I expect this to be uh, to continue until we see adverse impact indicators being disclosed from by investing companies. So it will be very important for financial market participants to consider the coverage as well as the materiality of their investment and proportionality in terms of determining whether they have identified principal adverse impacts through all reasonable means. It is also worth mentioning that the calculation of principal adverse impact should be undertaken on at least four specific dates, in this case at each quarter end, so to obtain a representative level of principal adverse impacts for the reference period. On periodic reporting, it is worth highlighting, as you said, Patrick, that just like in level one, level two periodic reporting templates will apply to any report issued in 2023, irrespective of reference period. I can see how this can be particularly challenging, particularly to those funds that have a fiscal year end, say, for example, end of September. Those funds could, could be in a situation wherein their pre-contractual templates and periodic reporting templates are being issued simultaneously. In this situation, the key point for me is to consider that when the pre-contractuals are being prepared, um, firms should also be thinking about the periodic reporting templates as the latter are just really meant to capture what that product have actually product has actually achieved during the reference period. So um, information that you disclosed in the pre-contractual should mirror what you will be disclosing in the periodic. So it's important that you kind of consider that when you're drafting your pre-contractual templates. Great, thank you, Hansel. Okay, I think we'll move on to taxonomy now, if we could move to the next slide. So a lot happening on the taxonomy front as well. Um, Tara, the taxonomy currently applies in respect to the first two objectives. Um, we have technical screening criteria in place. There's more to follow. If you could maybe give us an overview of developments, please. Sure, Patrick. And, and this is obviously a very busy slide. And just to remind people, as you said at the start, we are going to be sharing the slides afterwards. So nobody needs to be taking screenshots or trying to write down everything that's on this slide. But obviously, a huge amount is going to be happening over the course um, of the next 12 months. We have the, uh, the Climate Delegated Act, which applied from 1 January 2022, but then we have the Complementary Delegated Acts relating to natural gas and nuclear energy. That will apply from the 1st of January next year. We have the Article 8 Taxonomy Delegated Acts, which are really about trying to get the, the data that we need in relation to taxonomy alignment and taxonomy eligibility from underlying financial undertakings and non-financial undertakings and various deadlines applying there from the 1st of January 2022, 23, 24. Uh, we are also going to have regulatory technical standards applying for the 1st of January next year. Um, Lorena mentioned earlier we're still waiting for the final um, RTS under SFDR. We were expecting them, I think, today, and I'm very, very glad they didn't come this morning because I think there's been enough in this webinar as it is where it is trying to grapple with hot off the press regulatory technical standards as well. Just a couple of other things to, to touch on. The central bank mentioned yesterday that there's going to be an ESMA supervisory briefing. Uh, the exact timing of that um, is unclear, but it's imminent. And whether or not it will be published is unclear. But again, it is something that the central bank would plan to implement. Uh, and interestingly, they mentioned that one of the things that ESMA is looking at 
is the naming convention of funds. So we've touched in this webinar on how Article 8 and Article 9 have essentially become almost labelling. But one thing that, that hasn't really been dealt with by the action plan is the way in which ESG terminology might be used in the name of a fund and what does that mean in terms of its classification. Um, and as is looking again at, you know, we see here there's a lot of parallels between um, a lot of these concepts. And here what they're talking about is whether there needs to be minimum criteria in order to use terminology like ESG or green or sustainable in your fund name. So there'll be that will definitely be one to watch. Um, more generally, I should have mentioned earlier that the central bank didn't um, raise any particular concerns about the manner in which funds would be classified. So 35 funds that they looked at. They didn't raise particular concerns about people misclassifying their funds, which had been an initial focus um, of the of the review. But they seem content with the way in which people classify their funds as six, eight or nine. But this uh, is another sign that, that Europe is looking at the classification of funds and in particular the way in which funds are named. Thanks, Tara. And that's that's good context to, to provide. And uh terms of what we've been discussing on sftr there so just coming back then to the taxonomy regulation we've we've been getting a few questions around the data issues hansel and i thought i might come to you on this because you've been very engaged as well with the platform on sustainable finance and on what can be done in terms of of the data gap and data challenge if maybe you you want to outline a few points there please Yep, sure, Patrick. So given the ESA statement regarding the need to include numerical disclosure to comply with Articles 5 and 6 of taxonomy regulation from a level one perspective, due diligence performed on potential taxonomy alignment data provider will be crucial for asset managers, particularly in ensuring that the service being provided complies with the regulatory requirements. In terms of clarifications regarding some key concepts, I've mentioned earlier, FAMA has been engaging with members of Platform for Sustainable Finance in trying to get some clarity on a couple of points, including what does equivalent information actually mean, expectations regarding taking into account principal adverse impact indicators as part of the do no significant harm on taxonomy alignment and whether you can actually disclose taxonomy alignment in periodic reporting periodic reports if you didn't if you disclose zero percent in pre-contractual templates potentially we might see q a on articles five and six of taxonomy regulation product level disclosure similar to what the commission issued in December last year in relation to Article 8 taxonomy regulation disclosure obligation. Assuming we see a Q&A, asset managers should ensure they take this into account as part of their implementation. Thank you, Hansel. Uh, I think we'll we'll move on maybe now to um, some of the, the Q&A. We've been receiving quite a lot of, a lot of Q&A. So uh, one here, just coming back to you, Lorena, is do you have a view as to whether exclusions alone can be sufficient for an Article 8 classification, considering the, the level two requirement to disclose the percentage of investments in the portfolio uh, that are promoting the characteristic? Any views on, yeah. that, on, on that and exclusions? Yeah, Patrick, that's something that, you know, it's, it's a question that comes up quite a lot, actually, but it, it's pretty clear from the Commission's SFTR Q&A last summer that, you know, and it goes to points I made earlier, there is no specific strategy and the design 
um, is wide open um, for Article 8 funds and exclusion only is, is permitted. You know, they are within scope of Article 8. Um, so that, that's clear right now as to whether that is marketable for MIFID purposes. That, that's probably the bigger issue, I think, for an Article 8 fund to be looking at that is exclusion only. Um, but they should be able to complete the rest of your level two templates. It's just that uh, unless they invest in sustainable investments or taxonomy aligned investments, um, or unless they consider PAI as things stand, they're not eligible under MIFID two um, as a, a sustainable fund effectively for distribution. Thanks, Lorena. And another one for you here, Hansel, uh, going back to do no significant harm. For do no significant harm, aren't we required to assess whether the sustainable investment is aligned with the social safeguards, the OECD guidelines and, and UN principles? Is that done by assessing PAIs only? Um, no, so they are distinct sort of process. So if you think about taxonomy alignment, you first need to evidence substantial contribution to an environmental objective, then you've got the do no significant harm, and then the last step is the minimum safeguard. So they are distinct processes, part of determining taxonomy alignment. Okay, thank you, Hansel, for that clarification. Um, Tara, one for you. Is there an expectation that sustainability risk disclosure will be required to be updated periodically? Sorry, Tara, I think you're on mute there. We had gotten so far in this webinar without anybody doing that. <laughs> um, so I, I think that is a really interesting question. Uh, and I think it's one that's not necessarily addressed directly in the action plan, but you fall back more on first principles, which is that we're obliged to keep our offering documents um, up to date. Um, and so I think that just the fact that this is coming from a separate stream of regulations rather than USITS or AFMD itself, it doesn't change that obligation to keep the offering documents up to date. And so I think sustainability risks, given that they are um, by their very nature subject to, to change and can, can evolve, then I think there is an obligation that you would keep them under review. And so I think in the way that many people look to update their prospectus on an annual basis, I think that's something that you would look to be keeping updated. Um, if something, if, if the particular nature of your fund meant that particular sustainability risks were, were more relevant, then I think you might need to consider a more regular update. Um, but I think it will depend very much on, on your fund and also on how you approach those disclosures in the first place. But the central bank wants specificity and there's always that tension between something being specific and something getting dated very quickly. Thank you, Tara, for that. Um, Lorena, another one for you. Uh, have you seen Article 6 funds opting up to Article 8 or any other recent trends on product categorization under SFDR? Yes, Patrick, we have definitely seen um, reclassifications from Article 6 to Article 8. And I thought it was interesting, and it goes back to a point that Tara highlighted earlier from the meeting we had yesterday with the Central Bank, that they indicated that they had I suppose probed some of those um, reclassifications and that the responses that they received um, on points were more than satisfactory and they, they were quite complementary of the level um, of defensibility, I suppose you would say, um, that the managers were able to procure in response to the line of questioning and provide it. But that's not to say the central bank isn't probing 
um, those, those types of reclassifications and certainly wants to see uh, governance around that and I suppose word engagement on the point. So something to bear in mind there. Great, thank you, Lorena. Okay, well, uh, hopefully that, that answers your questions. Um, so that brings us to the end of our webinar today. I hope that we've provided you with some insight on what is certainly a complex and evolving topic. I'm going to leave you with this slide here. I think we couldn't have a sustainable finance webinar without a timeline, uh, given the, the amount of deadlines that we, we face. Um, so, so just as a reminder in terms of what has been said already on the webinar and, uh, for, for key deadlines, we have one June for the application of the EET. We have one August for the application of the USITS and the AFMD Delegated Acts, and one January 2023 in terms of the application of the SFDRTS, uh, along with further aspects of the taxonomy, as, as Tara mentioned. So the slides and recording will be made available after uh, the webinar. The next webinar on sustainable finance will take place in June, I believe, and that will be on sustainability reporting. We'll also have one in June on embedding ESG uh, duties for fund management companies, and we aim to get the paper out to you in advance of that so that we can discuss it on the session. So in the meantime, thank you for attending, and please do fill out the feedback form, which should appear on your screens in just a moment. Thank you, and goodbye.